Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today, our guest is Marsha Wagner, the president and founder of the Wagner Law Group. Marsha founded the Wagner Law Group in 1996. They are a recognized leader in ERISA, employee benefits, executive compensation, and estate planning. Marsha is passionate about ERISA, is an author, regular presenter, and has provided commentary on numerous television programs, including CNN, Fox News, CNBC, and Al Jazeera. Marsha, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into who you are personally? Oh, absolutely. My pleasure. I've been practicing law almost 30 years now, and on a professional level, I started off in the large law firms and became a partner and running the practice area in ERISA employee benefits at a very large law firm. And then almost 20 years ago, I decided, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to try to do and make this um, on my own. And the business now has grown significantly. We employ slightly under 50 people in total. And we have quite a national practice with five different satellite offices. On a personal level, I am a Bostonian born and bred and educated. I have four wonderful children, all of whom are teenagers now. So so it is quite a busy, busy life. It does sound like a busy life. It's so exciting to hear about a practice that has expanded. What did you do personally? What habits do you have personally that have lent to developing your business and growing your business? You know, are there any personal strengths that you really say... You know, that that really had an effect on our ability to grow. I I would say there are basically two attributes that are important. One is boldness, not being afraid to succeed. And the second would be subject matter expertise or being detail-oriented. It's extremely important if you're going to sell or market or lead or delegate that you understand what you're doing, what your niche is, what your strengths are, you need to know your knitting. So the two attributes that I would think would be the most important with respect to truly having a successful career are boldness and subject matter expertise or being detail-oriented. Excellent. Let's talk about boldness for a minute. How would you define that? So say you had a person starting out that came to you and asked advice. How would you define boldness to them? I would say don't be afraid to succeed and don't be afraid to fail. I know that sounds almost cliched, but I find people put up their own barriers to success by being afraid to succeed being afraid of the Icarus syndrome, effectively, and also being afraid to fail. I just had a discussion today with a very prominent professional from Harvard, had a stellar 30-year career in her chosen profession, and she's encountered difficult office politics, for lack of a better word, and she's effectively unequipped to deal with it because she's never failed. And I think failing making mistakes, recovering is all good. So if someone were young and asking me for advice, 
I would say have the confidence to be who you're meant to be, regardless of the price it might impose in the short term. Having paid that price will likely be worth it in the long term. That's a fantastic response. Thank you. And great definition. I I do. I actually have had when I worked for a major U.S. corporation, had this CEO and this was, you know, a more than $10 billion corporation say, I hope everyone here in this room of top 100 people fail at something so we can all work together to repair it. And I think it is a great lesson to have. Let's talk about tactical best practices. People that I interview talk about just things they do regularly, either speaking or writing or ways they communicate with their clients. What do you do or what do you recommend to the people on your team? What do you do to make sure from a tactical perspective, you're staying close to clients and really working towards having new prospective clients? Well, I would say that it really depends on the person's role in the organization. There are two types of attorneys there in general. There are those that get business that are rainmakers, and then there are those that actually keep business and keep the clients happy. So depending on where you fall in that realm, it really will uh, dictate what tactics you use. With respect to the rainmakers, tactics and strategy often, often are one. And it's being a thought leader. It's being on the cutting edge of trends. And it's reaching out to people and having, more importantly, people want to reach out to you to determine how best to proceed. With respect to people whose general job description is doing the work and keeping clients happy, the most important thing is is literally touching base, reaching out, always being available to answer questions, and of course, deep breath and depth and subject matter expertise. Very good from a tactical perspective. I'm sure it points... Uh, and, and I know you're, the firm is quite recognized. You are and, and your team is recognized in these particular areas. But I'm sure at points you were looking to grow your business and had to come up with a strategy to do that. Can you elaborate on what either a yearly growth strategy looks like in your firm or what you know a five-year growth strategy might look like? We don't work on growth based on numbers. We work on growth based on areas uh, where we think expansion is reasonable. So, for example, at the onset of the Great Recession, I felt it was extremely important to follow the money. Where is the money in the ERISA employee benefits executive compensation field? And it's quite clear to me that the money was with uh, money management and with distribution and with the creation of investment product. All of that comes under what's known as Title I of ERISA. And I decided we are going to become extraordinarily expert, the best in the country in this very area. So growth, and this has been a major player in our growth, growth has been related to doubling down in an area which I thought would be relatively recession-proof. Another area of growth I have found is that which is related to closely ERISA, employee benefits and executive compensation, our core competencies. And in that respect, uh, we went into ERISA litigation, both defense, by the way, and plaintiff and expert witness. 
we've also expanded into other areas such as employment and labor law. Again, with a benefits tilt or bent, but also building off of our core expertise. Obviously, 2008, 2009, 2010, you know, people were really reacting. And I mean this respectfully. Would you say that that was fortuitous or were you really, really looking and examining what was going on in the market to say, okay, where are we going to have opportunities based on our expertise? I think I I think a little bit of both. I, I think necessity is the mother of invention. And when you see the world collapsing around you. And that's what it was like in 2008-9 if you were a service provider. You have to think a little differently. You have to think outside the box. Now, I've always been a person who thought a little differently, who thought outside the box. I never would have left a cushy partnership in a name law firm and started a boutique arrest of practice if not. So in a sense, I've always thought, well, where does the practice go? How does it? How do I grow it? What do I do? What's different types of value I can add? But you add to that what seemed at the time to be an implosion of Western civilization (laughs) and our fiscal and monetary system. And you're thinking, okay, what will survive? What will shake out? How can I be different? How can I differentiate this firm? And more importantly, from my perspective, is that I felt as though I had a fiduciary obligation to the people that worked with and for me and had pledged their careers and their personal livelihood and stability from at least a monetary point of view in my hands to a very large degree. And I felt I had a core responsibility to keep them employed and to do the best I could. And that more than anything else motivated me to grow this firm and to do well during a recession. Because if I couldn't do that, who could do that for and with my partners and my employees? It was my responsibility and adults man up when they have to. So it's a very responsible way to respond and to the conditions. Let's move in a slightly different direction. Uh, so you've had, you've grown your practice. You've expanded into other states. You have multiple offices. Can you tell us a success story about when you were looking to and possibly related to really diving into the Title I or, you know, other areas of ERISA that were more in demand? But can you tell a success story about when you went out and really were successful in getting additional business and one where it took thought and and took planning to actually acquire that business? I think the biggest success story that I have is the fact that this law firm is 20 years old and we've survived, you know, basically three recessions and probably a fourth, which is going to be forthcoming within the next year or two years or so. Uh, I think survival in and of itself is the success story. And I believe the, that uh, the real success hasn't been with getting one client here or there, but rather creating a brand, a name brand. When people think of excellence in our areas of law, again, a risk or employee benefits, executive compensation, a risk of litigation, et cetera, I, the, the, our name is among the top. Having done that in 20 years time for a law, for a for a boutique law firm competing against practically everyone in the world is the success story. The way that was accomplished was blood, sweat and tears, but also basic management whereby in the beginning and even in the middle I had practically everything flowing through me. 
that is not possible in order to grow a business. And it was hard for me to let go of the reins a little bit with, with respect to the substantive work, to step back and let others shine and then demand others shine. Fantastic. We typically at this point would ask about another story where you felt challenged, like in in the last 20 years, I'm sure there were points where you said, you know, I have a difficult challenge to face gaining new clients or retaining clients. Was there any point in those 20 years where you really had to think about doing things differently or you had to even possibly fire a client? You know, it's funny. I don't, uh, I've had hundreds, thousands of clients. And the one thing I have found difficult was separating the personal from the professional. It's business. That's what it is. If you hire, if you fire, if you attempt to get business, if you get it, if you lose it, there is a personal element, don't get me wrong, but it's professional, it's business. And one can't have one's ego tied up in it. One can't be small, one can't be petty. And it's hard not to be. That's the human condition. The hardest thing to do, yet the biggest success, is not viewing your failures, not viewing the client that got away, not viewing the employee you had to fire, but viewing things in a larger, more complex tapestry of trying to survive in business and do good as a person. Great response. I often use that that comment about the human condition. People get so emotional. And if you can really take the emotion out of it, it makes anything dealing with clients, you know, coworkers so much easier. So a very, very different topic, uh, pricing. So this question on pricing has to do with fixed pricing, retainer-based pricing. So I wanted to get your thoughts on, you know, whether your firm uses alternative pricing arrangements, how you feel about them, how you feel they're understood by your clients. If you can comment on that, that'd be helpful. Uh, We do all of the above. Uh, I grew up and I'm more used to the billable hour. But we'll do anything that a client wants as long as I feel as though they're getting a fair value and I feel as though we're being fairly paid. Do we make mistakes from time to time with respect to pricing, but you stick to your word and and do what you say you're going to do on budget? Clients are reasonable people. They understand. I am of the position that it's always better to do work, to have work for the attorneys and the paralegals and the staff to do than worry about oh, we're not getting a hundred cents on that dollar. I think it's extremely important that if people want to work with us, figure out a way to get the cost reasonable so that all parties are satisfied. And even though I grew up with a billable hour, I'm frankly indifferent as to what people would prefer to do as long as they want to hire this law firm and as long as we can provide services that seem to be reasonable and needed and helpful. There you go. And I think that idea of realization and keeping people working and engaged and and having enough to do is is significant for someone who is running a firm and for those that are partners and participating. What are your thoughts on what's happening in the legal industry? Many of the folks I've talked to on Left Foot have talked about ways that they're trying to innovate within their firms, either by creating business teams for each client that combine an MBA, a finance person, and counsel, or just really doing more to ensure that multiple specialties are represented on client teams. 
in your opinion, do you see any innovation that you, you know, really feel will be part of the future of the legal profession? Yes. One thing that I think we're, we're doing, the Wagner Law Group is doing that is quite innovative is asking for and receiving payment for us thought leadership. For the longest time, lawyers would write articles or opine on certain matters of best practices and trends. And that was almost a freebie to show that they knew what they were talking about or they were on top of things, et cetera. At this point, one of the things that my law firm has done and we've become very known for is uh, white papers, positioning with respect to best practices and trends in the law. And when we write on these matters, we will write white papers. We will bill for this. It is not inexpensive. And that these white papers can oftentimes be white labeled for the money manager or the broker dealer or whomever wants to use it in order to provide this thought leadership to their clients or to their financial advisors or to whom anyone or to whom else they might think would find it interesting. So basically, as lawyers, we are supposed to be at the forefront of legal development. What this firm has done is that it has monetized that ability. I can see that being a great way of ensuring that not only are you giving the advice, but that you're able to effectively use that advice to translate into supporting your firm. I, I can share when I worked for a professional services firm and I, when I first joined, some of the principals would say, we go out and give our clients advice and then they don't hire us. And I'm like, yes, because you gave them the advice before they agreed to do business with you on that particular item. So I think it's very important to manage a professional service firm, you know, like a business and and really getting paid for that advice is is part of that. That is that is innovative. You do not hear that a lot. I know there are people you mentioned there are people you have uh, folks that are responsible for going out and generating business for getting the business. And then, of course, a team that is more focused on retaining that business for those those that are going out in search of new clients, do you monitor how they do that? Do you have, do they have business plans that include how they're going to grow the business or is it more they go out, they do business development activities and if they're successful, fantastic. If they're not, we'll, we'll keep working on those particular clients. You know, what's your philosophy around planning? I think that man makes plans and God laughs. I don't think that in marketing, at least with a professional services corporation, that which is written is really going to be effectuated appropriately. The particular lawyer will always have his or her own way of doing business. And a good one can tact, can change, depending on how the different winds are going or on what works and what doesn't. And this is much more an art than a science. And the people here that are business developers know what to do and what not to do. And some things work and some don't. And that which worked two years ago might not work now. So, for example, and every person's different. So, for example, I develop business, uh, one through almost inertia through the name and the reputation at this point, but also because I go out 
I like to meet people. I give lectures. I give seminars. I travel about the country and I get clients that way. I have another senior partner here who's a very known um, quantity entity in the New England area in the ERISA Employee Benefits Bar. And he'll talk to accountants and CPAs and actuaries in this uh, New England area because he's so well known. His uh, breadth and depth of contacts are so deep that he will literally pick up the phone or or have coffee somewhere. I've got another um, lawyer who's in the middle part of the country who very much is working with the Gen X, Gen Y, and millennial uh, next generation people in the financial advisory world and in the broker-dealer world to bring them into knowing our firm and the types of uh, help that we can provide. Uh, And there are many others. So every business developer in his or her own way will do it in the way that is most successful for them. But I'm not sure that the standard written plan and goals, et cetera, I'm not sure that really works. Uh, I think that what works better is for the person to know him or herself and and to try to see him or herself as others see him. That is a fantastic response, a fantastic response. Many of our listeners are millennial, mobile, and global. Do you have advice for professionals just starting out specific to business development? Everything old is new again. In other words, the tried and true marketing and networking and doing good work and being best in class and following up and being on time and being on budget and caring and having compassion, having concern, doing the best you can. These elements to a successful business and frankly, personal life are ageless and they're timeless. And I find the younger generations sometimes, as probably all younger generations have done since the beginning of time probably, try to push aside what has come before them. But it's always better not to recreate a wheel, but try to stand on the shoulders, if not giants, and at least of midgets, if you, if you look down on, on, on us a little bit. But that'll still get you higher. Look at what's been done and try to build on it as opposed to try to recreate the world on your own because you think that you're so much more tech savvy, know the internet so much more, and can tweet so much faster. These things are just tools. The underlying project and goal has never changed which is to do and to be the best you can personally and professionally and to do good business while doing so. Fantastic. A great way to end our interview. A great statement. It's been a pleasure, Marcia, to have you on Left Foot. And I really know our listeners will get a lot out of today's interview. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. Be sure to visit www.leftfoot.net to access show notes, sign up for our weekday series, and embrace what it means to lead with the left foot. Oh, 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 oh,